Welcome everyone uh, to the U.S. Peace Council organized webinar on imperialism intensified uh, military and economic war against Latin America and the Caribbean. We have a long list of experts and activists and scholars that will be talking about various aspects of, of these extended and expanded efforts of the United States against Latin America and Caribbean. I'm Bahman Azad, Executive Secretary of the U.S. Peace Council. I would like to thank, first of all, the Black Alliance for Peace and also World Peace Council for co-sponsoring uh, this with us. I'm going to start by introducing to you Alfred Marder, President of the U.S. Peace Council, who will be making some introductory remarks. Al, please. Thank you, Bob. Dear friends, a fundamental principle of the U.S. Peace Council is international solidarity. Solidarity with the workers and the people of all countries who are struggling for a better life, for a more just existence, and for people's democratic control. We also firmly believe in the right of all peoples to determine their own destiny. This solidarity is the same for the 42 million Americans who are forced to secure assistance for food. The same solidarity for the millions of Americans who are awaiting sanction evictions from their homes. The same solidarity with the millions of jobless in our country. It is U.S. imperialism in pursuit of raw materials and financial control that is sending assassins in order to prevent our brothers and sisters in South America from achieving their democratic control. U.S. imperialism ignores the democratic choice of the people. U.S. imperialism imposes sanctions, preventing even vaccines, medicines, and food from reaching the people. U.S. imperialism is imposing a global boycott of normal trade with the peoples struggling to build their societies. The U.S. Peace Council calls upon all those who believe in justice to protest and mobilize against these policies. We must demonstrate to the world that we are one with this struggle. And this afternoon, we are honored to be able to present the voices of those in the midst of this noble cause. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Al. I would like to turn the mic to my comrade Vijay Prashad, who is from Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and also a member of the U.S. Peace Council Executive Committee. Thanks a lot, Baman, and it's an honor to follow Al Mader, a legend of our movement, a real tall tree in our movement for peace and justice. There are 35 countries in the American hemisphere from Canada, the largest by area, to St. Kitts and Nevis, the smallest by area. Almost 1 billion people live in the Americas, with the largest country by population being the United States. Each of the countries in the Americas is a member of the United Nations, 35 out of 193 countries, and all of them have ratified its charter. 
all 35 members have ratified the charter of the organization of american states the basic axiom of democratic international relations is that each country regardless of its size and its power is as important as the next the sovereignty of each state is paramount and the international exchanges between states have to be managed through the principles of the united nations and the oas charters let's not forget that this is the normative or rules based framework adopted by all the countries in the hemisphere the great scoff law in the hemisphere since at least world war 2 has been the united states as al just said the record of disdain for the rules based framework is long stretching from the us driven coups to the us driven economic policies that afflict the poorest states in the hemisphere the united states government uses the language of democracy and rules to undermine democracy and rules through archaic attitudes such as the 1823 monroe doctrine the united states believes that it has the right to intervene against the wishes of the people of the hemisphere and this intervention comes both from tanks and from banks but the united states government is not alone it has several close allies such as canada which is home to 60% of the world's mining companies canada's great interest in what lies beneath the soil of the americas allows it to treat those who live above that soil with the greatest disdain canada pretends to be the more liberal partner but in fact its foreign policy is horrid its haste to overthrow any resource socialist government in the hemisphere is apparent the other ally of the united states are the wretched oligarchies of latin america those who hold power in a tight grip from colombia to honduras it was these governments with canada in the lead that met in lima peru in august 2017 to create the lima group with the express purpose of overthrowing the legitimate government of venezuela that group is a clear violation of both the un charter and the oas charter the oas charter is pretty clear and let me read one of the articles no state or group of states has the right to intervene directly or indirectly for any reason in the internal or external affairs of any other state the foregoing principle prohibits not only armed force but also other forms of inter- interference or attempted threat against the personality of the state or against its political economic and cultural elements this is a rule against hybrid war 
which has now become a habit of the United States and its allies against its adversaries. This hybrid war comes in many forms, most dramatically through an information war that seeks to undermine the legitimacy of processes other than those that have been certified by the United States. Military and economic pressure are key. Afraid of the normal commercial dealings of Chinese firms in the hemisphere, the United States set up Growth in the Americas or America Creche in 2019. This is the US government's attempt to fight the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative in the Americas. Barely remarked upon is the intensified US military pressure on Latin America and the Caribbean. This summer, the United States held two major military exercises in the Caribbean, Trade Winds 2021 in Guyana and Panamax 2021 in Panama. The old colonial powers, in other words, France, the Netherlands and the United Kingdom joined in. In a show of force, the United States demanded that Iran cancel the movement of its commercial ships to Venezuela during the duration of the exercise. This is part of the US-driven Caribbean Basin Security Initiative, which is an instrument to undermine Caribbean regionalism and Caribbean sovereignty. So that's the point. The United States and Canada intervene in the hemisphere and that intervention is designed to prevent the growth of regionalism and to undermine sovereignty, both essential to the United Nations and OAS charters. The people of the Americas are looking for another road. That is why St. Lucia and Peru recently left the Lima Group, which should actually be called the Ottawa Group or the Bogota Group. That is why Mexico's president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, called for a true regional body, a lackey of no one. The United States and Canada are only two of the 35 countries in the hemisphere. They behave as if they are the kings. They need to take their seats and speak in turn, honoring the principles of an agreed-upon rules-based order that is against coups, hybrid wars, sanctions regimes, blockades, and arrogance. Who wants to uphold the rules-based order? The group of friends in defense of the UN Charter, for instance, 18 countries including China and Venezuela, Palestine and Russia, Algeria and Cuba. The alternative to a rules-based order is a world in which might makes right and winners take all. And that would be a far more violent and unstable world for all of us. Let me read that again. The alternative to a rules-based order is a world in which might makes right and winners take all. And that would be a far more violent and unstable world for all of us. That last sentence that I read twice is not my own. It is what U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said to Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi 
at Anchorage, Alaska. Blinken and the rest of the Canadian and US power elite should listen to themselves. The world is violent and unstable because of the scofflaw behavior of the United States and Canada. That has to stop. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Comrade Vijay. Our next speaker is my dear friend and comrade, Margaret Flowers, who is a director of Popular Resistance and also a member of the Executive Committee of U.S. Peace Council, who will speak about unilateral economic measures and embargoes and sanctions. Thank you. It's an honor to be on this panel today with, with everyone. And thank you to Al and Vijay for that excellent beginning to this webinar. So I'm going to talk about the banks portion of what Vijay was referring to in the hybrid warfare that the United States wages. And what we are seeing under President Biden is really a continuation of the maximum pressure campaign that President Trump weighed against Latin American countries. This economic war is often referred to as sanctions, but in fact, what they are technically is unilateral coercive economic measures. These take different forms. They can be freezing the assets of a country. They can be restricting trade with a country, blocking financial transactions, blocking foreign aid to a country, restricting travel, and there are other mechanisms as well. But these are imposed by a country upon another country or people or a business in that country unilaterally without any sort of legal process that we would typically expect with sanctions, which are meant to be used as a punishment after there is some sort of infraction committed. So these are illegal under international law. They violate the United Nations Charter and they are considered a form of collective punishment and crimes against humanity as the Venezuelan government has been uh, doing such an excellent job of documenting to the International Criminal Court. The results of this economic war on countries is that it causes disinvestment. So from the very beginning, and often these, this economic war begins with some sort of designation as President Obama declared Venezuela to be a national security threat in 2014, as uh, President Trump, as he was going out in January, declared Cuba to be harboring terrorists, and often an initial step, although in the case of Cuba, sanctions have been going on there now for 60 years. But these are, are used then to justify this economic war against these countries. And the result is that they cause an economic crisis in this country that makes the cost of goods and basic necessities go up. They also impair regional cooperation, so making it harder for countries in a particular region to be able to, to trade and to collaborate. But I think that you know, the, the biggest our most heinous part of this is what they do to access to kind of basic necessities. And this you know, happens in a number of ways. The economic crisis can cause an increase in prices as there's a scarcity of necessities. As we see in countries like Cuba and Venezuela, there's an impact on the infrastructure, the ability to maintain the infrastructure of a country. This impacts power generation, 
conveyance of water, it impacts and, and also being able to clean the water, it impacts basically the, the corporations, the industries that the country has that it needs for generating revenue. So this basically then causes an impact on health, an impact on the well-being of the people. And this is why it is considered to be collective punishment and a crime against humanity. Now, often this economic war is used in lieu of military aggression or in addition to military aggression because it causes deaths in a more invisible way. The economic war, many people don't understand it, and it, it is considered to be a more acceptable form of pressure on countries. But we have to be clear that the impact of this economic war is just as deadly as bombing countries, if not more deadly. We know through the Center for Economic Policy and Research and other bodies that tens of thousands of people are dying in countries because of the difficulty they have with accessing medications and things that they need to survive. And this is particularly egregious when we look at the COVID-19 pandemic, when we look at the climate crisis, as Cuba just experienced Hurricane Ida and recently or a year or so ago, Nicaragua uh, was hit by hurricanes Eta and Iota, which it's still recovering from. During this time, it puts a huge strain on these countries that are already facing real difficulty. This is all part of the United States regime change apparatus. And for me personally, someone who lives in the United States and others of us who are here in the United States, we have a particular responsibility to organize and to put pressure on our government to end this illegal, unjust, immoral economic war in Latin America and around the world, really. The Biden administration, when it first came into office, one of the first executive orders that the President Biden issued called upon the U.S. Treasury to review the sanctions and make recommendations based on the COVID-19 pandemic to make sure that they were not causing undue suffering. Now, even this language of this executive order gives the United States government the wiggle room that it needs to be able to say, well, yeah, we're having some impact on these countries, but it's not, it doesn't reach the level of undue. And so what we've seen so far from the Biden administration is really no change. We've seen new sanctions placed on countries like Cuba and Venezuela. We see an outright attack right now on Nicaragua as they are preparing for their November elections. And uh, I'm sure we'll hear more about the Renacer Act that's going through Congress right now targeting Nicaragua. So all of this is escalating under the Biden administration. And that's why it's so critical that we as peace activists in the United States organize to oppose these measures and that we act in solidarity and take leadership from those in countries who are directly impacted by the U.S.'s economic war. So I do want to mention quickly the Sanctions Kill campaign that the U.S. Peace Council is part of, and that's sanctionskill.org, where you can find more information and a toolkit that you can use for educating in your community about the impact of the U.S.'s economic war. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Margaret. Our next speaker is Professor Jamima Pierre, Haiti America's Coordinator of Black Alliance for Peace. Will be speaking about Haiti for us. 
From January 31st to February 1, 2003, representatives from Canada, the Organization of American States, France, the U.S., and El Salvador met at a conference in Ottawa, Canada. The conference was organized by the liberal administration of Jean Chrétien, and the goal of the conference was regime change in Haiti. And discussions included, and this is a quote leaked to a reporter, the discussion was, quote, the possibility of Aristide's departure, the need for a potential trusteeship over Haiti, and the return of Haiti's military, end quote. So a group of white people met to talk about trusteeship over a black country. Now, by February 29, 2004, a year later, a small group of CIA-funded and trained armed paramilitary troops were terrorizing the Haitian countryside and threatening to advance on the Haitian capital. The U.S. ambassador to Haiti then arrives at President Aristide's house, orders his family into a car for a ride to Toussaint Louverture International Airport. The Aristides and a close aide are directed onto an unmarked U.S. jet, and they are flown out of Haiti and Aristide away from power. The then U.S. ambassador, James Foley, picked up Haiti's Supreme Court justice from his home and drove him to the prime minister's office to prepare his ascension to power. Haiti's then prime minister, Ivo Neptune, reported that he did not participate as dictated by Haitian law in the swearing-in of this Haiti's U.S.-installed new president in 2004. By then, there were already hundreds of Marines on the ground, and within hours of Aristide's forced departure, over a 1,000 soldiers, U.S. soldiers later joined by Canadian and French forces. And then soon after, under the leadership of France, the U.N. Security Council voted to send a Chapter 7, which is an armed military peacekeeping, and that's in quotes, peacekeeping mission to Haiti. So the peacekeeping mission that was sent to Haiti, uh, the armed military mission to Haiti um, by the U.N., effectively gave international cover for the imperialist coup and set the stage for what is an ongoing occupation. And we are living in this current moment. Everything that has happened in Haiti since, especially in the last three years, is a direct consequence of these imperial machinations. Now, I lay out these details because they are important to understand the significance of Haiti for imperialism in the region. Here you have an ongoing occupation fully sanctioned by the international community, the the destruction of sovereignty, and the capture of this geostrategic territory. But not only has the level of outrage been muted, this reality that there's an occupation, the destruction of sovereignty, is hardly recognized in the way that other occupied territories are recognized. Why? Because Haiti is a Black nation. And to talk about Haiti and the imperialism in the regions means also to talk about race and white supremacy and to talk about racism towards African people and white supremacy in the region. Because Haiti is Haiti, because Haiti is Black, because Haiti's uncompromising history demands constant reprisals from white supremacist imperialism, there is often the immediate turn to exceptionalism when those on the outside are forced to confront the political realities of this nation. Whether it emerges out of genuine ignorance or malice, the exceptionalizing tendency is often a too easy recourse to think of Haiti as just this exception. The reality, of course, is that Haiti has been a key staging ground for U.S. imperialism in the region, even if it is invisible for many. It has been especially clear in the past 30 years. This is why, for the Black Alliance for Peace, our entry in the region begins with Haiti. Haiti is the real and symbolic ground 
in which resistance is being waged once again to liberate the territory from foreign control and to serve as a strategic space for supporting the still unfulfilled anti-colonial struggle of the Caribbean and the broader Americas region. If we follow U.S., Canadian, and European imperial practice in Haiti, you will find a template that has been tried in Venezuela, Bolivia, and what is being attempted in Nicaragua. What we see in Haiti now is complete state capture, the dismantling of the Haitian state, but through clear strategies, not only soft economic embargo and sanctions on the Aristide government that made it impossible to govern, but another key mission was to destroy the remnants of the popular movement that had first brought Aristide to power. And it did so through CIA and NED, NED, National Endowment for Democracy, funded student, quote-unquote student, and pro-democracy movements, the funding and arming of paramilitaries, which actually the student movements led to a captive group of neo-colonial leaders to be used and deployed once the state was captured. And an example is the former prime minister of Haiti, Claude Joseph, which was a NED-funded student leader. In its current state, Haiti's vassal state has served imperialism in a number of ways against Venezuela by forcing Haiti to withdraw from Petro-Caribbean program, but also giving the vote against Maduro's mandate at the OAS. You have U.S.-trained Colombian police and military training Haitian police and military. The strategic location of U.S. military staging ground in Haiti as it plans both its containment plan against Venezuela and Bolivia and Cuba, but also as it plans its coming assault on China. So for the Black Alliance for Peace, our focus has been to make these connections and also while at the same time to see the ramping up of the activities of Southcom. Now, Southcom currently has a thousand soldiers as of today in Haiti for quote unquote humanitarian assistance. But just two weeks ago, Southcom conducted what they called Operation Trade Winds, where soldiers from Guyana, Brazil, Bahamas, Barbados, Belize, Bermuda, the Dominican Republic, Jamaica, and Trinidad and Tobago participated in region-wide military exercise. The military exercise was with all these countries, with army personnel from the U.S., England, Canada, France, and the Netherlands. So we have to ask ourselves, how is it that such majority African countries as Jamaica, Belize, Barbados, are so easily pulled into these new moves of empire? I want to end there by going back to the issue of thinking about the importance of incorporating a clear analysis of race and white supremacy in our fight against imperialism. Haiti is an African country, but what is happening is not unique to Haiti. We have to see the various ways explicitly that race gets mobilized within the imperialist project in this region. Thus, there is not enough attention given to the large African populations in Colombia, in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, who, along with indigenous populations, suffered the brunt of imperialism's violence. At the same time, as we have seen in recent weeks, especially in recent weeks, how race has been mobilized by the imperialist powers through identity politics against Cuba, even as imperialism is stomping the black sovereignty in Haiti, stumping out black sovereignty in Haiti, funding anti-black violence in Colombia, it turns, it turns anti-blackness to use as an imperialist move against Cuba. So in the fight against imperialism, and as we lay the foundation for turning the region into a region of peace, we ignore racial analysis and analysis of white supremacy at our own peril. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Amima. Next speaker is Dr. Monisha Rios, who will be speaking about Puerto Rico 
Monisha is a member of U.S. Peace Council Executive Committee. Monisha, please. Thank you, Baman. And thank you, Jamima. So in Puerto Rico, we experience the escalated military and economic war differently because we are still an active colony. We have a complex relationship with imperialism. When the U.S. began its perpetual war of conquest against our people in 1898, it was to advance its goal of military, economic, and ideological domination in the region. And Puerto Rico is key for that. So since then, the U.S.'s military, economic, and ideological domination of our nation has led us into a set of enormous contradictions where we live with one foot inside the imperial core, benefiting from imperialism, and one foot inside our sovereignty, which is constantly under attack. For 123 years, we have endured life as targets of a colonial hybrid war with our minds, bodies, and lands exploited in such a way as to create the conditions for our complicity in the imperialist aggression against our cousins. The construction of military installations began immediately after the conquest, and in 1917, U.S. citizenship was imposed on Puerto Ricans just in time to draft them into the U.S. military as they entered into World War I. Since then, our nation's strategic value to imperialism increased, with the development of U.S. Southern Command, Southcom, which you've heard mentioned already, as well as the School of the Americas, which is now known as the Western Hemispheric Institute for Security Cooperation, or WINSEC. Puerto Ricans have had a prominent presence in Southcom, in the School of the Americas, and in the U.S. military in general. So we have been forced in many ways through economic conscription to participate in this imperialist violence at the same time that it is being done to us. With Southcom, Puerto Rico took the place of Panama in 1999 as the hub for operations in our region. And we also hosted the U.S. Special Operations Command South until 2004. Jamima was talking about Southcom's trade winds exercise in Guyana and the deployment of Southcom to Haiti. And Puerto Rico is also part of that. Puerto Rico is not differentiated when it comes to Southcom, because we are considered property of the United States and therefore identified as part of the United States. So our sovereign nation was also involved in the trade winds exercise, as it's also been involved in the uh, USAID operation currently underway in Haiti. Like our foreign policy, our economy is controlled by our occupiers with the collusion of our oligarchy. The colonial economic war against us escalated recently in 2016 when the Obama administration imposed the Puerto Rican Oversight, Management, and Economic Stability Act, which we call PROMESA. This act authorized the creation of a Fiscal Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico, which we here call La Junta. And the reason that this board was created is because of the billions of dollars of illegal debt that has been incurred over time here in Puerto Rico. And we recently declared bankruptcy. And so this board, this La Junta, is authorized, is appointed by the president of the United States. It's not an elected body, and they have more power than our elected officials. And under the leadership of Natalie Jaresko, who was the minister of finance in Ukraine from 2014 to 2016, where she negotiated and implemented the largest international monetary fund program in the fund's in institutional history, this board has imposed austerity measures 
on us, closed schools and universities, cut pensions. They've overridden laws that have been proposed by our elected officials that would ease the hardship of these policies. On top of that, Jaresco's salary is $625,000 a year. We also live under the Jones Act, which restricts our trade and really heightens the cost of living here so that the economic conscription that we live under works very well in favor of the United States. It forces Puerto Ricans into a, a very precarious position to flee our homeland because we cannot survive here. Money is not put into our infrastructure. It is only put into military and it is put into private enterprise. The U.S. and Canada currently have succeeded in privatizing our electrical grid through a newly formed company called Luma Energy, which we are fighting. There's more that I can talk about about Puerto Rico, but uh, my time is running out. And with respect to the other speakers, I'll stop here. Thank you for allowing me the chance. Thank you very much, Manisha. Our next speaker is Netfa Freeman. Comrade Netfa is uh, from Black Alliance for Peace and also Pan-African Community Action. Conrad Netfa, please. Thank you, Brother Bauman. So one, I'm very glad that our comrade from Cuba raised the issue of the proclamation of the Latin American Zone of Peace. I just put that in the chat again. We really want to lift that up, not just as something that we want to give rhetorical lip service to, but something I think that we should build campaigns around to foster it. It stands starkly against the forward motion or the militarization that U.S. imperialism and Western imperialism in general is having around the world. It's a concept of peace that includes self-determination and national liberation for other organizations. And we want to be clear also of the Pan Black Alliance for Peace and also Pan-African Community Action. A lot of people are talking about now. We see that Afghanistan is in the news and people are raising up the defeat on, on the left. Some on the left think that what's happening in Afghanistan represents the defeat of U.S. imperialism in general. It may be a, a lost battle, but we do not believe it is the defeat of U.S. imperialism. In fact, we see, as all of our speakers are attesting to, that there's an intensification of U.S. aggression in this hemisphere. In fact, that'll probably be compounded by this administration's desire to look tough. And also the fact that neoliberal capitalism in the world is just waning, it's unsustainable, and they're feeling the desperation of that. We also know that there are, and I think Latin America demonstrates this, that there are anti-war, those of us who are anti-war and those who are so-called anti-U.S. empire, that don't take a stand unless there's outright military invasion. And they might give lip service to opposing sanctions, but unless there's outright, and that's, that's only lip service. But otherwise, there's really silence on what I think Brother uh, BJ mentioned. Well, he, he alluded to it, that there's a, a hybrid war. And part of that is, is internal subversion. And we want to actually lift up all the aspects of the war, of all the aspects of war that U.S. imperialism uh, operates on. I was able to recently go on a delegation to Nicaragua. I want to mention some of the things that I want to raise up and use Nicaragua as an example, but I think we all know that we're talking about the U.S. imperialism's military or aggression and war in the Americas. Nicaragua just like most countries, has a uh, unique situation. Many people, now we have generations of people who may not remember the Contra War, a very media high-profile war that the United States actually assembled mercenaries 
Many of them were not even Nicaraguans to wage a war against the Sandinista revolutionary Sandinista government. This Contra war and the history of it, it also includes the CIA involved in drug trafficking, shows the diabolical nature and insidious nature of U.S. imperialism. I was part of the delegation, and this delegation it happened to come to Nicaragua on the 42nd anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution. It's very telling and very revealing educational to go to countries like Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba during times of like these celebrations. For example, in, in Cuba, they have May Day. It's very telling because of the propaganda the U.S. wages against these countries always tries to paint the governments as being unpopular, as big dictatorships. But when you go during these times, you get a chance to see the popularity and the regard that the people have for the revolutions. And the revolution is the process. In fact, I want to lift up, there's a comrade who was a journalist, Ben Norton, who was there at the same time, wrote a very good article. He's one of the journalists for the Gray Zone. And his articles, their articles are really good, but this particular article also has a lot of photographs in it that I think are very revealing when you see the photographs. So one of the things that's unique and telling and instructive about the Nicaraguan experience is that in 1990, the U.S. had the Nicaraguan people under duress vote in a neoliberal government. So the Sandinistas came to power in 1980, 1979. They had to fight this war with the Contras. And then the people tired of war and pretty much under duress, Ronald Reagan made it clear that the U.S. was going to continue to support the Contras, that they voted for the neoliberal government. In 2006, this is how long they, from the 1990 to 2006, they had a neoliberal government and then voted back in. 17 years of neoliberal austerity and the people voted back in. The Sandinistas, Daniel Ortega, won the presidency and the election with a 38% plurality. Ever since then, the Sandinistas have been gaining in popularity. This is to contrast the inability of capitalism to meet the needs, to be a people-centered, human rights-driven project and to meet the needs of people to actually be the opposite. But socialism was able to see, you're seeing the popularity of Daniel Ortega go for, to 63% in 2011 and 72.5 in 2016. And then now these are latest polls by MNR consultants that show clearly that the Sandinistas are poised to win another election, which is what this country and U.S. imperialism doesn't want. So they're on a full assault to under, undermine that. There's a page in the U.S. imperialist playbook that I think Sister Jemima alluded to already that shows they're using identity politics against us. They may not be as successful with that when it comes to Nicaragua because there is real, actually an autonomous region of Black and Indigenous people that the Sandinistas have codified into law the recognition of autonomous regions. And then in this country and other places, as the consciousness of our people begins to realize that there is the misnomers about the demographics in Latin America, that there's large populations of African people with, that are 
the natural allies of us in particular Nicaragua, Colombia, Venezuela, that we need to forge alliances and the political education and people to people's exchanges are, are key to that. Sanctions, let me just read really quickly this paragraph from an article written a long time ago by Philip Agee, former CIA who defected from the CIA and wrote this in the article he wrote. Actually, the new program was not really new. He was referring to the National Endowment for Democracy. Since its founding in 1957, the CIA had been deeply involved in secretly funding and manipulating foreign non-governmental voluntary organizations. These vast operations circled the globe and were targeted at political parties, trade unions, and businessmen's associations, youth and student organizations, women's groups, civic organizations, religious communities, professional, intellectual, cultural societies, and the public information media. The network functioned at local, national, regional, and global levels. Media operations, for example, were underway continuously in practically every country wherein the CIA would pay journalists to publish its materials as if they were the journalists' own. The Directorate of Operations at the CIA's headquarters, these operations were coordinated with the regional operations divisions by the international organizations divisions. Since many of the operations were regional or continental in nature, encompassing many countries with some even widespread in scope. So as my comrade Jamima talked about, now these things are done through agencies like the National Endowment for Democracy and then I just want to talk about the sanctions really quickly. There's, we have to oppose the sanctions that are against that were just approved against Nicaragua, reinforcing Nicaragua's adherence to conditions of electoral reforms. So they're calling it Renacer Act. They always call these sanctions targeted sanctions. It's done to target members of the FSLN, the Sandinista Party, which actually is over 2 million people and their family members are also targeted. We have to think of it in these terms. In the U.S., that would be tantamount to imposing sanctions on every registered Republican and Democrat. So when they use these terms targeted, it means absolutely nothing. They're trying to undermine and get at the elections that are coming in Nicaragua. Uh, so version and militarism represent the efforts of imperialism to maintain the exploitative relationship between northern capital and the laboring classes and peoples of our region. As we speak, they're enhancing the U.S. Southern Command through arms sales and Israeli training and security forces through all of its inherent deception. Imperialism has made it crystal clear that it will use force directly and indirectly through sanctions and subversions to achieve their ends. Our response must be equally clear. We will never surrender to imperialism. The Black Alliance for Peace stands in unwavering solidarity with the people of Nicaragua and of this region. Others on the left might equivocate or even align with imperialism and will criticize us for the support. But our response is always to say that we stand for the principles of national liberation and self-determination of the peoples of all the nations. And for Black Alliance for Peace, there is no compromise and no retreat. Thank you. Thank you, Comrade Netva. Our final speaker, before we get to the question-answer period, is uh, Comrade Iraklis Sabdaridis, the Executive Secretary of World Peace Council, who will be speaking about the U.S. destabilization efforts in the whole region. Comrade Iraklis. Dear comrades and friends, brothers and sisters, 
the U.S. Peace Council, by taking this initiative today, proves one more time its principled and crystal clear positions, the genuine internationalism of the militant peace lovers and peace fighters in the U.S. with all the peoples struggling for their just causes in the world, but in particular with the peoples of Latin America and the Caribbean, which is at large and for long considered by the U.S. administration as the backyard of the USA. The U.S. administrations have a long record of dirty and bloody interventions, coups d'etat, and are known for their support to the most reactionary and authoritarian regimes in Latin America. This has never stopped, and it comes regardless who resides and occupies the White House, Republicans or Democrats. There is almost no country in the region of Latin America and the Caribbean where the U.S. have not intervened directly or indirectly through mercenaries in order to overthrow the legitimate government or to support dictators and their regimes. The United States of America is using for its plans and operations, apart from the billions of U.S. dollars and their respective weapons, also the willing cooperation of local reactionary forces and personnel, corrupt military and civilians who hand over the sovereignty and wealth of their respective countries, their mineral resources and raw materials. The local bourgeoisie identified its interests with the ones of the U.S., as they were doing earlier with the colonial rulers for hundreds of years. Although many decades have passed from the bloody U.S.-backed dictatorships in Chile, in Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, the military invasions in Cuba, Nicaragua, Grenada, Haiti, the coups in El Salvador and Honduras, and so many more, the U.S. has never given up its hegemonic policies. After the change of the international correlations of forces in 1991 and the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the imperialist camp continued its expansion worldwide in Eastern Europe, in the Middle East, in great parts of Asia, and of course in Latin America and the Caribbean. It is not by chance that the U.S., hand in hand with its allies in NATO and the region, like the so-called Lima Group, are using dozens of foreign military bases in South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. Along with its fourth naval fleet, the U.S. maintains a permanent military force ready to intervene at any moment. Colombia has been named officially a de facto NATO member and best ally of NATO in the region, a country which actually constitutes the Israel of Latin America. Currently, the imperialists of U.S., NATO, and European Union have three main targets in the region. Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, which are considered prestigious targets for the imperialists. Cuba remains the focus point for more than six decades for the imperialist forces. The island of the revolution is under permanent attack and threats, sanctions, and a criminal blockade, aiming at the overthrow of the regime and the system which was the first of that kind in the region, serving as a source of inspiration for all the peoples of Latin America and much beyond. The current health pandemic is being used in order to strangle and asphyxiate the country and its people. The scheme is as simple as inhuman and dirty. To increase all the obstacles to economic transactions, imports and purchases of medicine, food and fuel, so that the suffering of the people and their respective discontent will lead 
to anti-government protests and subversive actions which undermine the sovereignty of the legitimate people's-based government. The U.S. and its paid agents inside and outside Cuba have failed in their endeavor, endeavor for a color revolution. Thanks to the firm stand of the leadership of the revolution and the massive engagement of the people in the streets. The actions of the Biden administration are destroying also the false expectations about the U.S. Democrats in comparison to the Trump administration. The illusions about the Obama administration's er administration earlier, which applied a different tactic, but never a different strategy towards Cuba, have collapsed, along with the hopes for normalization of the U.S.-Cuba relations. In the case of Venezuela, the achievements and changes made after the victory of President Hugo Chavez in 1998, with the mass-based support by the people and the anti-imperialist forces, created new conditions for the people of Venezuela, opened the way for the social and political emancipation of the people. It is only the people of Venezuela who can decide and determine the depth and the direction of these changes, the defense of the achievements and the deepening of the transformation so that the people of Venezuela will become the masters of their wealth and fortunes. The fact that the income of Venezuela from oil is today only 1% of what it was nine years ago speaks for itself. The consequences on daily life of the proud people of Venezuela are severe. Thousands of families have sincere problems of decent living conditions, despite the efforts of the government to subsidize basic goods. The inflation is growing, and the devaluation of the currency is liquidating the purchase power of the average Venezuelans. Venezuela has faced since 2014 open military threats and actions of destabilization and attempted coup d'etat and attempted assassination against the legitimate president of the country, Nicolás Maduro. The country is blocked from any kind of possibility to import basic goods. Its foreign assets are being frozen, robbed, and given to self-proclaimed puppets like uh, Juan Guaido. The country is being prevented from a massive va vaccination process due to the sanctions and economic restrictions. We are well aware that Venezuela, as the richest country in oil reserves worldwide, constitutes a permanent target for the imperialists. They cannot accept that the choice of the people not to become again a de facto U.S. colony. Often we hear and read in many countries that Venezuela is the example of the collapse and failure of socialism. The social and economic problems of the people of Venezuela, the suffering of the Venezuelan people is not an expression of the crisis of socialism. It is a clear expression of the crisis of capitalism, which we observe in the capitalist world in a synchronized way worldwide. This is being aggravated by the sanctions and the imperialist interference in all spheres of life in the country and additionally by the health pandemic, which is global. It is important to underline that while the U.S. is the main and predominant imperialist force in the region, the European Union exercises a similar role in full coordination with the USA. It is not by chance that not a single action or decree of the U.S was ever opposed or objected by the European Union. The European Union is interfering in the domestic affairs of countries in order to secure the interests and profits of the multinationals based in Europe. It is openly challenging the elections and their results, speaking hypocritically about human rights and democratic freedoms. 
The social democratic governments of Portugal and Spain, for example, are in the forefront of these policies. All the above are also valid in the case of Nicaragua, one of the poorest people of the region, which fought in the end of the 1970s against the U.S. intervention and against the contrast, entering a new phase then with the Sandinistas coming to power, but unfortunately they could not maintain the governmental power for long. The comeback of the Sandinistas some more than 10 years ago created hopes and expectations, but the subversive actions of imperialism and the reactionary oligarchy have never allowed the people to develop without interference its choice. The world today is dominated by the international imperialist system. The negative correlation of power is visible in many corners of the world. It is therefore important for the peoples of the world and the anti-imperialist forces to identify the enemies of peace, uniting efforts and struggles for a world without imperialist wars, without exploitation, where the peoples will be the true masters of the destiny of the, and their fortunes. Dear friends, allow me at the end to make one uh, comment on an issue which is very educative and teaching us many lessons, also it is not from the Latin American region, about the recent situation in Afghanistan, 20 years after the imperialist aggression, supposedly in order to combat terrorism. The suffering of the Afghan people has no ending. The anti-imperialist peace-loving forces were well aware of the hypocrisy and the real goals of the aggression in Afghanistan. All around the interventions and all what happened in the 70s and 80s in the region. Finally, in 2001, after having served the imperialist plans, the Taliban, which were the creation of the imperialists, became a target of their previous masters. The adjustment of the foreign policy of the United States and NATO in Central Asia had in mind their confrontation with Russia and China. Hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives. Millions were displaced and became refugees. And more than two trillion US dollars were spent all these years by the imperialists for military operations and establishment and funding of willing puppet regimes in Kabul. The lucrative opium business mushroomed and multiplied for the last 20 years. Now, when we have the withdrawal of the Biden administration and the, the U.S. troops from uh, Taliban, new heavy suffering are in front of the uh, Afghan people, especially the women. This uh, new situation will add new social problems for the people of Afghanistan. Uh, the danger exists for a stronger emergence of religious fundamentalism in the region. The Taliban's, the armed Fundamentalists heavily armed with the military equipment of the U.S., which the U.S. is leaving behind, create many concerns for a new wave of refugees in the area. Comrades and friends, the World Peace Council expresses its solidarity with all the people struggling for their just causes in the world, likewise with the people of Afghanistan, who never had in the last 30 years the freedom to decide upon its future and its fortunes. One last word, the U.S.-NATO military occupation on the one hand and the rule of the Taliban on the other hand are the two sides of the same coin. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Comrade Iraklis. And thank all the speakers for their profound statements and, and, and educational talks that are really helping everybody to better understand the whole situation in the region. Well, we have four or five questions. One of them is very general and the other are about Puerto Rico and Haiti. 
So I'll go with the general one, which is a question that is addressed for Comrade Vijay or anyone who wants to answer. And the question is, why hasn't the People's Republic of China intervened on behalf of the allies like Cuba? What has stopped the socialist country from leveraging its global power to help in battle Latin American countries, for example, Venezuela and Nicaragua? It's a great pleasure to be back. I think the issue of China in Latin America is very significant. At the No Cold War platform, we had several events on this issue. It's a little complicated just to make a direct statement, only just to say that the Chinese have been pivoting from a foreign policy that has been largely, you do your thing, we do our thing, to a slightly more solidarity-driven policy. China did send ventilators to Cuba. The outpouring of solidarity after July 11th deserves to be catalogued. An aid flotilla from Bolivia, ships from Nicaragua, ships from Mexico, ships from Venezuela, um, really profound sense of solidarity from countries around the world, and the Russian airplanes, which brought 88 tons of material. The Chinese have sent those ventilators. They have said they will send more things. The question of Chinese entry into offering solidarity is one that is very important. And, you know, you've got to look at it diplomatically with the arrival of China in South America, in particular in Central America, providing an alternative to the IMF World Bank form of development. And this alternative comes in the way of the Belt and Road Initiative. It's a direct challenge to the IMF World Bank. This is going to take some time to germinate, friends. I think one can't be too impatient about this. Multipolarity coming out of a long and wretched period of unipolarity is going to take time to build. It's not that the door closes on one and opens on the other. The interregnum is long and we have to really struggle to develop multipolarity, which is why I emphasized the objectives of sovereignty and solidarity regionalism, and so on, which come out of not my ideas, but the UN Charter, the OAS Charter, in fact. These carry the principles of multipolarity, sovereignty, and regionalism. These three things are, in fact, the foundation of multipolarity, regionalism, solidarity, and internationalism. They are the basis of it. And we we will see, I think, as time goes on, other countries get involved. I think the fact that I'd mentioned the development of the group of friends in defense of the UN Charter, 18 countries led by Venezuela, including China, Russia, Nicaragua, Cuba, and so on. This is a very significant development. I hope people will lift up the group of friends in defense of the UN Charter. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Comrade Vijay. The next question is probably addressed to Comrade Jamima. It reads, why does the U.S. always pick on Haiti? Is the U.S. meddling in Haiti only about racism? There must be something else there that the U.S. needs. It is not oil or mineral. What is it? That's the question we always get. I've said this before of the Haitian Revolution, which Haiti has never been forgotten for doing, for, you know, standing up, as someone in the chat said, standing up against imperialism, but forever, you know, shattering for, even for a short while, white supremacy and making white enslavers panic. 
I also think the UN-led occupation, which is still ongoing, is deployed as proxy for enforces of U.S. regional policy. And this regional policy has a number of parts. A key mission is actually, I said this, to destroy the remnants of the popular movement that first brought Eresi to power after a long dictatorship, which was supported by the U.S., to promote interests of the business-friendly Haitian bourgeoisie, but also to promote neoliberal economic agendas, but also as a geostrategic place for, for the Americas. I do think there's a way that Haiti gets lost in the conversation, even though it's central to Western imperialism in the Americas, in the sense that people always think about Haiti in terms of charity as opposed to solidarity, in terms of Haiti as a basket case, and not realizing that this is actually by design from the very beginning. And I do think it's an important thing that we have to remember that we talk about solidarity with other places, but we also don't see Haiti in any way as a strategic location for the Western imperialists. And we forget, we forget that. And if we don't remember that, if we don't deal with Haiti for what it is, for what they're doing, for using Haiti as a base to do everything else in the Americas, we're losing the, the conversation, we're losing the battle. So why Haiti? Because yes, racism is very, very important. There's also tons of minerals and oil in Haiti, but there's also the geopolitical reasons that Haiti becomes very important for Western imperialism as the U.S. empire is waning. Thank you, Conrad Jemima. Now, the question, the last question is about Puerto Rico. Is there a pathway for Puerto Rican diaspora towards decolonizing themselves? And are there any efforts established in Puerto Rico towards building resiliency from the economic draft into the U.S. military? Thank you for this question. Yes, definitely. I was part of the diaspora before I rematriated and came back to the homeland. And I think there are maybe three things to start with. Number one is realize your nationhood. Puerto Rico is an occupied sovereign nation. And a lot of Puerto Ricans in the diaspora forget that. And we often think that we are part of the United States willingly. So think about that. Embrace your nationhood. And then also work on identity politics because the identity politics are strong in the belly of the beast and they will convince people that Puerto Rico is a brown nation. Puerto Rico is a white supremacist nation. There's a lot of racism here. We are not all brown. There are many white Puerto Ricans and that has a lot to do with our colonization and it has a lot to do with our participation in imperialism. And thirdly, I would say, raise your voice and make sure that the peace movement in the United States and the anti-imperialist movement worldwide does not forget that we are a sovereign nation and we are part of the Latin American and Caribbean region. And we also need to be amplified in our struggle. And the, the efforts here toward building resiliency against being drafted in the U.S. military are independence movement, which also needs your support. <laughs> so the independence movement is all about every aspect of sovereignty that would change our material conditions, food sovereignty, health sovereignty, energy sovereignty, et cetera. So then we change our material conditions and we no longer have the economic draft looming over us. So support that. Thank you, Manisha. I, I follow up with another question that came probably should deal with that because it's more concrete about the recent situation. Asking, can you briefly explain the protests in our beloved Puerto Rico last month 
that pertain to electricity. And why is it that there was so much noise made about the protests in Cuba, but nobody talks about the protests in Puerto Rico? The privatization of everything in our region has a lot to do with Puerto Rico, too. And our oligarchy in conjunction with the United States and Canada, their effort recently has been to take over the electrical grid with Luma Energy, this Canadian and U.S. company. And so our electrical and irrigation workers union went on strike because this privatization was forced on us. It was forced on us with La Junta also. And so... We've had so many outages, sometimes weeks at a time. Many people, about 800,000 Puerto Ricans were without power for weeks, including people on ventilators, including people in the hospital. It was like post-Maria conditions. So that's what was happening here. It's been happening for a while. We still have outages. We also have outages of water. So the trend of sabotaging essential services in order to force privatization is happening here in Puerto Rico as well. And I'm not surprised at all that an Afro-Puerto Rican scholar completely ignored what was happening in her homeland in order to go against the liberation of Cuba from U.S. oppression. Unfortunately, that, that happens a lot. Thank you very much, Manisha. And with that, I would like to thank all the speakers for all the informative speeches and arguments and, and positions that they presented to us. So with that, I would like to thank all of you who participated in this uh, important webinar and let us get together and work harder to really make this liberation possible. Thank you very much.